Hello and welcome once again to Core Ideas, the podcast dedicated to anything and everything related to lake sediments and paleolimnology. As always, we're your hosts, myself, Adam Jaziorski, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Josh Steenpont. Hello again, Adam. It has been a little while. It has been a little while. I, I think we said that to begin the last episode, uh, and it's been longer since then, so we haven't improved upon it, if that's a negative. Anyway, it's been a busy few weeks for everyone. It has it been a bit? Uh, yeah, the world is... Well, it's weird. The world is becoming more normal, even as like the headlines seem to say the opposite. It's Omicron yeah. in the headlines now, but in terms of uh, work and semesters and stuff and entering offices, it's become a little bit harder to stick to the old schedule. Yes, but, definitely. And uh, yeah, and like, we're technically still preparing for a full-on campus winter term and all, and all that, but uh, yeah. The podcast will continue even if it trickles along. Yeah. At a glacial pace. A glacial pace. Uh, how fitting. Uh, we could talk about that in a minute. Uh, uh, that, 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 was, that was the goal. Because uh, What a segue. My goodness. <laughs> a little premature. But right. today's episode continues a small picture arc that we've been working on for the past couple of months now, uh, where we've been looking at individual paleo indicators and in some level of detail. And... In the past, so far, we have done pollen, chlorocerins, coronamids, diatoms, diatoms, pops. Um, I think that's it. And today we're going to go on seven. Ice yeah. Oh, and oh, one of those was the our aside. It was kind of still mixed in there. Yeah. Yep. I think that's it. Yeah. And so um, today's topic is how stable isotopes are used in paleolimnological studies. Sounds fun. Sounds fun. Something you are intimately familiar with, Josh? Not intimately. Um, I mean, more the theory of of how stable isotopes work. It's something you talk a, lo a lot about in, in a bunch of teaching situations because it's commonly used to reconstruct a lot of past environments in a range of different media, which we can talk about other things beyond lake sediments in the kind of anecdotal rambling section at the end of all of these. Um but not a lot of personal experiences. It's one of those things that uh, a lot of times, if from a paleo perspective, you, you would send those samples away for analysis. Uh, a lot of the, the at least paleoluminologists I know, with a few exceptions of people who are very into isotopes, who use isotopes um, do it that way. Yeah. I um, have no direct experience with isotopes myself, and hmm. my closest experience have been sharing offices with people that have sent their isotope samples away. That's seen that's lots of talks I, about, about see, isotopes. I've seen many, many talks. So um, basically uh, I will, um, going to be relying on Josh a little bit here. I'll, I'll, I'll throw the questions in the softballs. Are you throwing the softballs? I hope they're very <laughs> soft. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But uh, for, in terms of like uh, background material though, there's, there, there isn't a whole deeper book on, isotopes, but it does percolate through a number of different components. Yeah. So, um, if you're looking, you'd be looking in a couple of different chapters in part three of deeper two, 
So in terms of what we were going to talk about today, be chapters 13, 14, and 15 for those following along at home. Um, That would be the chapter on inorganic carbonates, cellulose, and nitrogen. The cellulose one is mostly about oxygen. There's some carbon stuff in there as well. So a couple that rely and talk a lot about carbon isotopes and then a focus on nitrogen in a full chapter. Yeah. All right. So basically, again, because kind of outside of our lane a little bit here, maybe we'll start at the very beginning with uh, what are isotopes? Are you asking me or are you going to fill in the... Maybe I can fill this one. Uh, No, I'm asking you. Rhetorical. So they're they're, uh, examples or uh, occurrences of uh, an element that have different masses. So basic chemistry, high school chemistry, elements are defined by the number of protons that they have in their nucleus and the number of electrons can vary and that's depends on and is important for chemical bonding and reactions and all that stuff but they also vary in terms of the number of neutrons which affects the variation in the overall mass of the nucleus so the same element can have different masses based on the different number of potential neutrons that are there and those are called isotopes the different elemental uh occurrences with different masses. And the the important thing that comes out is that the different mass of the uh, the nucleus of the element alter how they behave in chemical reactions in both natural chemistry, but also in biology. And so that can result in variations in different areas of the environment. Yeah. And just to illustrate this, again, this is very high school level chemistry, very um, fundamental stuff, but um, the most obvious differences are illustrated when you look at hydrogen as quote unquote, I guess, normal hydrogen only has one proton. Proton, yep. And then, um, but you can also have isotopes of hydrogen that either has one neutron as well or two neutrons as well. But so then H2 or deuterium would be 100% heavier per atom than normal hydrogen and tritium or h3 would be 200 percent heavier and then that that is the one that you may have heard of in terms of uh its um radioactivity and and that's a i think that's a great example and you know you said it's elemental but it's like the basic one but that difference in weight is is so obvious it's like a hundred percent more whereas when you get to really heavy ice or elements like lead um and the difference between like 206 and 208 atomic mass units is only two out of 200 and something. So it's 1% difference. And so yeah. there's much less variation. Yeah, so. m- much more subtle differences when you're yeah. measuring them. Um, mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and so then we look at protium, deuterium, and tritium. Um, and we also have an example there that the majority of um, isotope species or like types of isotopes that can exist in the world are unstable radioisotopes, which are part of the K-series and um, potentially quite short-lived. And we've talked about some of these in previous episodes when we're, when that instability um, is useful for things like dating sediments. And so examples of that would be uh, radioactive isotopes of carbon, lead, and cesium, 
Um, however, in terms of, I guess, encountering in the wild, um, the vast majority of isotopes and, um, would be stable isotopes or non-radioactive isotopes or is when you're looking around in the world. Yeah. So the, by and large, the bigger the difference between the number of protons and the number of neutrons, the more likely it is to be unstable or radioactive. So if there's a, a relatively small difference, and it will depend on the mass because that that's important there, um, they're going to be more likely to be stable. And that's right. So the ones that we think of as sort of quote unquote normal, like carbon 12, which is the same number of neutrons as the same number uh, as the number of protons um, or oxygen 16, where there's some sort of parity between the protons and neutrons make up the vast majority of the species of the occurrences of those elements in nature, in all of the compounds that are made from those elements too. So the vast majority of water that you find on earth is going to be made of of the common the most common hydrogen isotope and the most common oxygen isotope so it's going to be h1 and o16 but there are going to be these very rare occurrences of those other isotopes and we know based on the the nature of them what the relative abundance of those relatively rare things is in nature and how they behave and that's really useful yeah and just to, so this is a very wide field of study. Um, so just to bring it back into paleolimnology, uh, or I guess narrow down um, in terms of paleolimnology, by and large, and then of course um, there are exceptions to the list, but um, by and large, when you're throwing around the term stable isotopes and paleolimnological analyses, you're usually referring to various isotopes of carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen. Yep. And maybe sulfur is occasionally in there, but yeah. by and large, those three, for sure. Yeah. And those three, the various isotopic uh, ratios, as Josh just mentioned, um, that are found in nature uh, vary uh, due to well-defined processes. And usually when you're talking about stable isotopes, you're talking about ratios and basically using what is referred to as like delta notation and referring to whether a particular sample is enriched versus depleted in the isotope of interest relative to a laboratory standard. Yep, you can and you can use any standard you like, but there are standard standards for the 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 majority of of analyses and the delta notation uh in order to use that is uh the con the amount of the sample minus the standard over the standard multiplied by a thousand so the the units of the delta notation are in per mil which gives you an idea of how small uh, an amount uh, these isotopes are in comparison to the the more common isotope in uh, in the environment so very very small and you know the numbers that you see they'll vary but we're talking like when you're looking at enrichment or depletion like you know, 10 to 15 per mil kind of values in, in all, the majority of samples that you see. So very, very small. Okay. Yeah. And as we mentioned, um, uh, the isotopic ratios like have a average that you find in nature, but then because we're talking about differences in mass between individual isotopes, um, fractionation processes occur 
um, according to natural processes, based on these weight. And the most, I guess, straightforward one of these to think of is in terms of evaporation condensation. So, for example, when you're looking at um, condensation of water vapor as it travels inland from uh, in an air mass, so you're coming from the ocean inland. Uh, the further inland you go, it's going to become increasingly depleted in uh, delta 18O um, because the heavier oxygen, the heavier water, the water molecules carrying heavier oxygen isotopes are basically going to drop out faster than the lighter ones. So you just have this general, based on way that condensation works, the heavier stuff is going to drop out first. And so you're going to have a gradual depletion um, over time, the further you go from the ocean. Yep. And the evaporative, the evaporate will be uh, lighter, isotopically lighter than what was left behind in the ocean as well. So you get a fractionation or a, a separation going on from the evaporation phase as well, because chemistry is lazy. So the O16 is going to evaporate preferentially into forming clouds, into the atmosphere to form clouds. Uh, which are then going to move over the land masses. So there's a, there, at each of these different steps, you end up with these uh, these separations occurring in the different isotopes based on these chemical processes, and that extends to other chemical processes too. So photosynthesis uh, will be an important one for the carbon cycle because obviously taking CO two from the atmosphere, taking uh, CO two from or uh, carbon, uh, not necessarily CO2, but dissolved inorganic carbon from the water in terms of uh, aquatic organisms undergoing photosynthesis. And they'll preferentially take lighter isotopes generally uh, to carry out their photosynthesis, which leaves behind some of the other stuff, the, the heavier ones like carbon-13. So the, all of these processes are, are working in this well-defined, well-understood uh, chemical nature that results in different uh, media, different uh, locations in the environment having different uh, isotope amounts. Yeah. And then the last one on our list would be looking at nitrogen. And so the processes you're looking at is um, biomagnification as you go up food chains in terms of um, the molecules um, that are fat-soluble and stored, less likely to be excreted just because the chemical process involved are going to be, have a bias towards the lighter uh, nitrogen-containing molecules. And so that would allow you to go to distinguish between various types of animal feces, for example, um, in terms of uh, the um, nitrogen enrichment or, deplete, or, or depletion signal that you'll find within them. And um, yeah, and so in terms of measuring these signals or in a, interpreting signals in terms of a paleolimnological sense, um, key thing to keep in mind is that bulk analysis is usually not very viable um, in terms of just looking at raw sediment samples and going, okay, what is the delta? Um, what is the um, oxygen hydrogen? Um, Isotope ratios within the sediment writ large, usually you're looking at some sort of organic isolation um, in terms of 
cellulose preserved in the sediments, shells, tree rings, bubbles and ice cores that are just basically trying to isolate one physical process from all the others that may be kind of mixed up in the same sediment sample. Yeah, the most, um, I guess the broadest bulk analysis or the most, uh, the least refined, and I don't mean refined methodologically, I mean in terms of the sample, would be on the bulk organic uh, matter. So that's not just taking all the sediment because then you have the inorganic components, you have the silica compound, you have everything that's there. Uh, it's not uncommon to look at the the organic carbon and then all of the organic carbon in the sample, all of the organic nitrogen in the sample or all of the nitrogen in the sample. The carbon is, is more important to get that organic part mixed up. But then you can go very, very detailed and isolate individual bubbles, as Adam said, or uh, individual diatoms or a series of diatoms. So they can be really, really accurately uh, uh, measured. And that's because the, the masses, you know, uh, when you have a really clean sample with all of the same sort of material, it becomes a, a mass spec uh, kind of analysis, a max, mass spectroscopy uh, analysis, not, like, oh, not unlike we talked about with POPs. Yeah. It's just a slightly different machine. And so again, you're dealing with, in the same way, in small amounts of material. And your first step is to convert your organic samples into a gas. And then you run it through the mass spec. And then peaks in, individual peaks in your sample output will then be associated with particular atomic or isotopic weights. Yeah, an isotope ratio mass spectrometer, which is used for the, the CNOS series, can be added in line to a elemental analyzer. So it's, it measures the elemental composition. So the total organic carbon or total carbon uh, or organic carbon, if you've removed the inorganics, the total nitrogen, the total oxygen, total uh, sulfur, whatever. And, uh, and then measures it in line, like the gas carrier sends it on to the next machine. If you get to heavier isotopes, that doesn't work. It's not, you know, it's not going to be specific enough. And you would move on to like a really sensitive uh, ICPMS or, or a device like that. Okay. So I think that's probably a good place to take a short break, cover the background of isotopes, and uh, we'll just take a break from one of our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Field Meals Helicopter Meal Kit Service. Have you ever arrived in the field, done a hard morning of sampling, and realized you did not bring any food for your team? You're a terrible supervisor. Hey, we've all done it. And now there's a solution to a problem that has plagued paleolimnologists since the beginning of time. Introducing the Field Meals Helicopter Meal Kit Service. A single satellite phone call can have PB&J sandwiches delivered by helicopter to wherever your field work has taken you. But Adam, what if someone has a nut allergy? Team members with nut allergies are no problem, as wow butter sandwiches are also available. Delicious. And a variety of payment methods are accepted. Credit card, PayPal, Discovery Grant or CFI account numbers, and subscription services are available. It's peanut butter jelly time. Anywhere, anytime. All right. So having covered in a very general sense what stabilized isotopes are, the next step is to kind of look at what kind of questions can stable isotope records that are archived in lake sediments answer. Um, and mainly we're definitely outside of our comfort zone here, but thought maybe we just rattle off a couple of the big ones that we have been, I guess, maybe adjacent to in our careers or set in on a couple of conference talks for at this point. 
Yep, for sure. Read about, <laughs> interested in, curious about. Yeah, for sure. Because uh, there's so many. There's lots of really interesting ones. And uh, and maybe it makes sense to go by isotope first. Sure. Like, uh, like think about oxygen isotopes and some of the things you can do with those. Sounds for lack good. of a better way of organizing it. Sounds good. So oxygen and hydrogen, as we talked about, because they're in water molecules um, and, and a lot of other compounds, you find hydrogen or, or oxygen and hydrogen together are often grouped together and, and they'll be used in similar types of analyses. And they'll often look at the uh, oxygen 18 ratio, which is the most commonly used stable isotope of oxygen and the deuterium uh, isotope ratio together as a way of comparing uh, environmental changes broadly. And a lot of the uh, uses of oxygen, hydrogen isotopes are related to water balance at the, at the broadest level. Hydrology, tracking the movement of water, the sources of water, and the processes that result in water uh, either building up in locations, being very evaporative, being very, uh, very wet, and thinking about water balance. Yeah. And so this is where you get into the realm of looking at lots of figures that involve the global meteoric waterline, which is the uh, um, where you're looking at the enrichment depletion of both uh, deuterium and O18 on the same graph. And then it's just a, a relationship that um, is consistent. Uh, around the world, so you'd be able to plot out because both both the heavier one, the heavier isotopes are going to come out um, in a c consistent rate, no matter where you are in the world. So you're able to plot where you where you are, um, and that is definitely a figure I've seen many many times, especially <laughs> in the uh, early days um, when I was adjacent to um, some like the extensive work done out of. Uh, Waterloo, looking at the Peace Athabasca Delta of Northern Alberta, and there, yeah, the, uh, no doubt, <laughs> had an in intense interest in in hydrology related to ice jam flooding, and just using the sediment records to compare the histories of closed versus open basins, so lake ponds in the landscape that were, I guess, hydrologically isolated, so basically gradually dried out over time until there was like large-scale landscape flooding and relied on them to um, restore the water and then gradually evaporate down again. And um, looking at many of these lakes along various points on the landscape in terms of their closed versus openness um, to reconstruct long-term flood histories in the region. Yeah, and, and you can create those meteoric water lines more locally, not just at a global level. And, and so you can do that for a region, especially if you have so much information on an area like, like the work that's been done in the pad. You can almost use the relationship of different samples from the river environment, because it's all river flooding, to fingerprint the source of water that's getting into these lakes by looking at those ratios and then tracking over time the evaporation as they become more evaporative, more enriched in uh, isotopes as the evaporation gets rid of the, the lighter isotopes and uh, and see how they change away from that, that sort of uh, river-fed uh, open state that Adam was talking about. So there's been so much work there and uh, 
I've, I've been a, I've been along for a little bit of that sampling on their more re- recent return, not that recent anymore, I guess, but more recent uh, return trips, and uh, yeah, the, that's a huge use. And then looking at it in the sediments from uh, from a, finding it in the cellulose, which is Brent Wolf's uh, expertise at at Laurier. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's how I got my start in paleoanology, running lots and lots of pad samples way, <laughs> way, way back. And lots and lots of LOIs. Yeah, there you go. Well, you need to know the organic mm. content uh, yeah. in order to do that. And and very different sort of questions being asked about the local hydrology and the relative proportion of flooding and water balance, but the same kind of idea. If you're thinking about using the marine isotope record in marine sediments to track long-term like glacial cycle changes the principles are the same you're looking at oxygen isotope composition you know that under certain conditions you're going to have a greater abundance of enrichment of oxygen 18 relative to oxygen 16 and then you can track that in the sediments and you can do that in any media you can do it in bulk marine sediments you can do it in the ice cores which is basically a flip of what you would find in the marine sediment record. You can do it in corals and biologic uh, organisms like silica. The idea is the same, is that the the relative uh, processes driving evaporation and then the return of that water back to the marine environment are going to change over over understandable conditions like ice ice stages. Yeah, and so that's where, that's where things like ostracods could be used in terms of climate reconstructions. And uh, yes, there we go. Oxygen hydrogen isotopes, all you need to know. And this is where I bow out. And you take the reins, Josh. I have now joined the ranks of listeners. I have tapped out on my isotopic knowledge at this point of the episode. So let's okay. talk about nitrogen. There we go. Right. Um, okay. All right. Nothing like being put on the spot uh, here. But it, that's not true. I don't, I don't believe you on that, Adam, because we know and we've, I'm sure you have seen many uh, talks that have included nitrogen isotopes. Delta N15 is the the most commonly used um, stable isotope of uh, from a paleo perspective uh, of nitrogen. N14 being the most uh, common uh, isotope. And uh, nitrogen is an interesting one, right? Because it makes up the vast majority of our atmosphere, the gas, uh, but it's also incredibly important in terms of a plant nutrient and the different sources of nitrogen to plants because they can't take it from the atmosphere. They can't fix atmospheric nitrogen are really important. So the difference between ammonia and nitrate as sources of the energy or the not the energy, the nutrients for plants that they need as a, as a way of going about their metabolism and creating their structure can result in different signatures in the um, uh, in the sediments and in the in the organism uh, but another really common one that I, I was alluding to that I'm sure you've seen talks of is using it as you mentioned I think in the introduction as a, a tracker or a, a way of inferring changes in the food web structure in that environment because of the likelihood of some of these heavier isotopes building up in greater concentrations in the tissues of organisms as they feed at higher trophic levels. So if you look at the N15 uh, composition in the tissues 
of an algae versus a zooplankton versus a, a planktivore versus a piscivore versus the mammal at the top of the food web, you're going to get an increasing amount of that N15 as you move up that food chain. And that will be released when they excrete their waste because a lot of waste includes a fair bit of nitrogen and you can track that in the sediments yeah okay you've got me and because we did have a guest on here not that long i guess it's quite a while ago now but uh this year matt duda was here uh talking about uh his work on bird colonies and so one of the proxies that he was looking at in that study was delta n15 and using the and enrichment in nitrogen 15 to infer when the colonies basically were present on those isolated marine islands. Mm -hmm. And there's so many interesting examples in the paleo literature of similar kinds of analysis, the salmon work in British Columbia and Alaska, whales in the Arctic, uh, human uh, influence because we we are hydrophobic organisms, uh, so there's lots of of really cool examples of using uh, nitrogen as a food web indicator. Not the only thing, but yeah. I think the uh, the most um, I don't know. Yeah, have we actually talked grabbing. about the whales on on the show before? With like, I'm not sure we have. We've talked about the Thule whalers and the Dorset uh, Paleo Eskimo groups, yeah. and just the and the whole con, which is just kind of mind blowing. And the first time. I was exposed to it of like a uh, um, um, a single whale being brought in by these paleo peoples in that were mm-hmm. whaling from like canoes basically and a bowhead whale is an enormous animal <laughs> and uh, yeah and just the amount of nutrients in one whale brought ashore you know a couple hundred years ago is still has oh yeah the you can still see the like tent ring yeah yeah um of uh just that level of nutrient enrichment in some of these environments is kind of cool yeah and even because even though the baleen whales like they're not super high on the food web they're not like polar bears they're but they're big. they are so long lived and they eat so much that they accumulate as opposed to magnify significantly and, and uh and they're, big. and they're such a nutrient fertilization source so yeah, some really cool examples of nitrogen and there are others kind of productivity related ones, but uh, yeah, some interesting stuff. Okay. All right then. Okay. So you got me on nitrogen, but carbon 13 is the complicated one. And the one that I really have had no uh, <laughs> exposure <laughs> and, to um, and, so far. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll be honest, it is a complicated one. And I think people who study carbon 13 will be the first to admit that this is pretty complicated you know there's there are a lot of different processes because carbon is is everywhere right um and it's in different media and it is so for co2 in the atmosphere but all of the different carbon molecules that are you know sugars and food web related carbon molecules there's lots of different components of carbon in the environment there's also old carbon in the environment and so there's lots of things. All that being said, uh, it is very common to use uh, carbon-13, which is the most common stable isotope, as a way of thinking about the productivity of lakes uh, and the source of nutrients. uh, And by nutrients, I mean the source of algae versus plants. So the source of uh, the carbon in terms of where it came from 
and the the trophic level and not trophic level the uh organisms i guess that that produce that um because different photosynthetic pathways so c3 versus c4 plants uh will produce different carbon isotope ratios um, because they have different photosynthetic processes uh, i assume that cam metabolism the the sort of nighttime metabolism that that plants undergo would be different as well but off the top of my head i don't know I so no you idea. can track algae versus plant sources but using carbon ratios but also uh you as i said i think in the introduction that photosynthesis is relatively lazy so it will take up more c12 which means that the remaining dic dissolved in organic carbon carbon dioxide carbonate bicarbonate uh, in the water will become enriched in c13 and any other organic matter that's then created from that water dic pool will have more c13 in it and that means that the organic matter will be enriched in C13. So you can use it as a way of tracking productivity in lakes because the algae have sucked up all the C12 and then every other use of it becomes more enriched in C13. Does that make any sense? I think so. Um, mm, good. <laughs> or I'll take your word for it at least. Um, and uh, But it is definitely a uh, broad field of study um, and... There are people that know much, much, much more about this than uh, we can hope to convey in this show, but we're just highlighting it as one of the potential uses within paleo that um, you may, right. yep. may be interested in if this is kind of one of your first exposures to stable isotopes as a paleo topic. And I guess the last one on our list that we didn't really go into any real detail would be talking about stable isotopes of lead. Um, which is a completely different one, but from a paleo perspective, it'd be really used to track. Um, I guess it almost have, it's one of those things where it could have fall, fallen a little bit into the previous episode, but tracking lead as a pollutant in terms of things like lead added to gasoline historically. Yep, that's right. Yeah, it's more of a tracer of of location. So different lead uh, or different uh, ore bodies and and locations uh, have different stable lead isotope ratios and you can use those to fingerprint broadly the location of of contamination uh, in the environment from the combustion of those materials when they're put up in the air fall down somewhere and and the it's the usually 200 uh, lead 206 208 ratio so you look at the combination of them uh, in order to compare them and i'm not even sure if they use the same notation the delta i'm not i'm not oh, actually yeah. sure i think you may just be looking at the uh the ratio of those two to each other okay but the key point to note for today is that it's distinct from the lead to 10 that we've been talking about in many previous episodes that's right yeah well but i mean that's a good example right because uh the that is a more extreme uh difference like i i mentioned uh so lead to 10, quite well, relatively uh, unstable, relative radio yep. decaying. Yep. And, uh, and Half-life of 22 radio. years. Yep, that's right. Oh, just get into just uh, some general 
talk here. This isotope stuff is complicated. It's very complicated. It really is, isn't it? Especially, you know, it's like, I mean, you, you know, a very abstract interpretation of very, very complicated overlapping chemical processes are all basically going to be uh, distilled down into a series of squiggly lines. And I think more, I don't know if this is really fair to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's like more than many of the other paleo proxies that I have any um, real familiarity with. It seems more, I guess, deductive, I guess would be the word. There's more almost detective work involved once you get those uh, signal profiles back, as opposed to, you know, that we're looking at something like a Clodosin or a diatom profile. It's like, well, this species went up, this species went down, and you're trying to infer some just general movements within the community that may have caused them, as opposed to a more broad delta. Uh, OE team got enriched here. Do we have any ideas why? Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, on on all of those com- accounts, like if you have a picture like back to undergraduate biology and think about like picturing the drawing of the electron transport chain of, of photosynthesis or whatever, or any of those things. And then thinking about at each of those stages that the carbon dioxide molecule, so go back to like the early parts of photosynthesis. Plus it's so long ago. It's only me. going to be picking the lighter, <laughs> not only picking, you know what I mean? Preferentially. But it's more likely this is going to be happening to the lighter isotope because there's more of it, but also because of these things that is hard to imagine it's hard to like get your head around the the chemistry of it um more so even than some of the the organic pollutants because you just assume like okay these are there we made them in a lab or they're produced by these processes but it, it it's at this really really tiny level and then it's also process related and the processes change under different conditions so temperature is really important for driving those and you know, the, the concentration of these things. And then on top of it, you get to the point where you're trying to interpret those data, put them into context, uh, and there's multiple uh, compartments in the environment that are contributing to the potential for those things to change. It, no doubt that it seems more complicated than there's more cyclotella now. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 I agree. I, and so it really... You know, I think more than a lot of the other stuff we talking about, have talked about in previous episodes, really needs to be part of multi-proxy analyses because, you know, like, yeah, there's some, you know, come at me if you disagree with me. But um, there's some element of, like, say we look at the bird colony studies, for example. You know, if you just only looked at the Delta N15 um uh, profiles, it'd be like, okay, we've seen some enrichment 200 years ago, and then it goes down again. It's like, why? It's like, you need to know mm-hmm. something about, well, you know, there's a bird colony on the island. Now we've got some other records that line up with current conditions. So this 200 year must also be enrichment from a similar bird colony, but the, um, the ISO profile on its own is not enough to like run with for that kind of interpretation. For that kind of interpretation, absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, if you're asking like big ecosystem level questions, it's a really useful tool and it can do more than 
just the diatoms or just the cladocera, if you're asking about productivity in that ecosystem, in the same way as, in some ways, in the same way as pigments and things like that, like we'll, we'll get to talking about. <clears throat> but, um, but for specific, uh, specific questions, I think it lends itself quite nicely to incorporation with other things. It tells you things about the uh, context in an ecosystem perspective, of some of the processes linked to bioindicators or changes in in other conditions that you might find, um, and and they're very complementary in that way. But on their own, unless you're asking very specific questions like about water balance and and those kind of things, um, it it is a little bit more big picture. Yeah. And yeah, so you know, this is where we kind of go. Have you actually ever actually been involved in any publications that include a global meteoric waterline? Uh, no, sir, I have not. Oh, okay. Me neither. Uh, <laughs> I have published a few that may have had like delta lines, so carbon, nitrogen, uh, never oxygen, I don't think. So no, de no deuterium either. I've never made one of those plots with the LEL and the GMWL. Uh, together, I like them. I think they're cool. Yeah, I think they're interesting, and and I've seen them explained enough that it, like, oh, that's neat. I see, I see what it's doing there. But no, how about uh, you? No, um, all not even as a co-author on anything. I, I don't. Uh, no, I don't think so. Hmm. Um, you know, like my most, I guess, isotope adjacent period of my life would have been um, uh, the work on the pad that I did years ago. But I was like a research technician at that point. I was just doing a lot right. of processing of samples, actually, rather than any analysis of samples. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, you know what? Maybe I have to double check, but I don't think so. I don't actually remember any. Uh, but like, you know, where the difference is, is like, you've actually been to the pad. Uh, whereas I I've not even done that. I've not physically been there. Four times? Five times? Three times? Four times at least. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I have. I've been to all of those lakes that uh, are in, you know, were sampled in that and been back to them. I've collected little water isotope samples and obviously sediment, of course, but uh, the water isotope samples in the little bottles, make sure, the key thing, Brent would say, mm -hmm. is make sure there's no air in the top of it because mm -hmm. you don't want the air from the, the isotope ratio of the air getting into the water because you want the water sample. Um, and I think the main difference may have been that I was a postdoc at that time and, and probably, and they'd also been working there for so, so long that, uh, when you were, a, a an undergrad technician, they were just ramping up their research and there's always this lag effect to get material into the samples and published and know what they're talking about. And, uh, a lot of this more recent one was to return and see what had happened. So there's lots yeah. to compare to, yeah. but no, it was, it was a cool uh, time it was neat to see all of these lakes and to see the difference in uh, lakes um, that were very connected to the channel, basically flow through systems, versus ones that are highly, highly perched, ones that are have no connection. You are know, basically ex uh, air water balance. You know the evaporation precipitation ratio of the environment is being indicated in their sediments. Um, and then going back and, and sampling them multiple times. So going in May and then it's really, really warm and going in June and seeing how they had changed and then seeing that those data come out in the in the evaporation ratios of the lakes. Yep. It was a cool, cool couple of uh, years of field work. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I've 
yeah, most I've ever been isotope adjacent. I guess another uh, isotope potential kind of source that you would have also had some exposure to was periods in your life you've been tree ring adjacent, haven't you? Very adjacent. I mean, uh, yes, I've been in <laughs> in a lab where they have sanders and look at tree rings and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And tree rings are a great record because for because they um, they have their cellulose structure um, and uh, and and they're annually laminated, so it'd be like a varved record. They don't um, move, but they don't move. Um, you can uh, uh, you can go back. You know, and get a number of different individuals. You can look at um, dead individuals. So if you can find trees that have fallen, you can cut out the cookies from them, like a you know, like a circle. And uh, and there's some interesting work on doing it in old buildings. You know, like going into old buildings that have wood beams oh, and timber that. and oh, taking cores. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure how much has been done for isotopes. There's definitely been done for for dating those those structures, but I would imagine isotopes too, because they're an archive of trees that are hard to find on the environment. And uh, yeah, so it's it's fun. Yeah, I, I like tree ring stuff. Uh, it's another one of those things. Again, I've I've taken one or two tree cores ever, um, and uh, but always interested in hearing about the the things that come out of them. I've never taken an ice core though. No, me neither. Partially, there's some work actually that's been done on uh, not just ice cores, but in permafrost. So that I wouldn't say I'm adjacent to that. I've never worked on it, but looking at ice wedges because they they do grow in some sort of stratigraphic manner uh, in the permafrost, and they can be very very old. Like there are ice wedges in uh, the Yukon that are multiple glacial really ranges. Yeah, like a couple hundred thousand year old wedges. So what? Do, okay, this is where I want to plead ignorance. What do you mean by an ice wedge? Uh, so it's like uh, it's exactly what it looks like. It looks like a, a triangle inverted in the ground, and they form through freeze thaw activity. And so the ground water gets into the ground. It freezes. It expands, right? Because everyone yeah, knows yeah. if you freeze a bottle of water, it gets bigger and you know gets and makes a mess of your fridge or your freezer, yeah. and then. Uh, water will seep, seep down into the middle again and freeze. And so they grow a little bit at a time and they grow from the inside out. So you get this horizontal stratigraphy of the wedge that you can uh, you can go and sample. Cool. So how physically big would one be that spans multiple glacial cycles? Uh, form five meters. Really? Okay. I'm really big ones can be that big. The, the average is probably not that old. That, that's or, those are exceptional yeah, yeah. Uh, examples. But a, a normal kind of Holocene age wedge would be as big as I am. Yeah, six, six feet tall. Okay, that's cool. I, I'm, that's not something I'm familiar with at all. Cool, cool, yeah, cool. cool. Learn something every day. So there's lots of examples, lots of uses of isotopes. It's one of those techniques that that spans uh, well all of these different isotopes spans. Uh, paleo environmental media and lakes being just one of them cool all right well we hope you've enjoyed our little jaunt through uh stable isotopes and i think maybe we'll be wrapping up our small picture arc here and maybe think of something a little bit more bounce out to like big picture going forward for a few a few more episodes um yeah see if we can knock out one more episode in 2021 yeah. and uh before i have to celebrate and, our uh, second anniversary 
That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and then, yeah, uh, I'm not sure anyone listens and actually sends in ideas, but if there's any ideas, we'll, we'll find something, if not Absolutely. something a little bit more broad, and then we'll, we'll circle back to some methods again, because our list is not done yet. I think it's just maybe time for a little change for us and for you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So thanks again for listening to Core Ideas, the podcast dedicated to all things paleo-limnology. If you'd like to reach out to us with a question or a comment, please send us an email at coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can contact us through Twitter at Core Ideas Paleo, and there's only one A in paleo. All of our past episodes and most of their corresponding show notes slash blog posts can be found at our website, coreideas.ajesiorski.ca. And if you're so inclined, give us a rating or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcast. Those five-star ratings would be great. But to be honest, we really don't care. We're just doing this for fun. Do we actually have any five-star ratings? I don't think we have any ratings at all. <laughs> and that's it for now. But join us again next time as we continue to explore paleo-limnology in the knowledge economy era, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy.